The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of MedPEP or Physician Health Services. The advice given to Marie Curious has been individualized and may not apply to the listener. While Marie Curious is a real person describing both real and hypothetical events and situations, she is using a pseudonym for this series. Welcome to MedPEP, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program. I'm Dr. Les Schwab, your host for this series of podcasts. I'm a practicing internist, an experienced medical leader, and a trained professional coach. In that capacity, I help medical leaders, physicians, and other health professionals develop strategies and plans for managing today's intense workplace complexity and often overwhelming demands. As ever, my partner in these conversations is Dr. Marie Curious, a young primary care internist who is determined not only to survive today's difficult environment, but to thrive as well. Each week, we enjoy the company of a visiting expert who will offer perspective about particular solutions to this complicated, many-faceted problem. But before we begin today's discussion, I'd like to ask Marie if she's had any particular insights or reflections about some of the recent podcasts we've had together. Les, always glad to be back with you. Indeed. I've been thinking a little bit more these days in the course of clinical practice about my relationship as one practicing physician and how I relate to the organization as a whole and also the leadership of the organization. I think when we first started this podcast series, it very much felt like an us versus them the practicing physician versus the administrative C-suite or whomever, the supervisors. And more and more through our podcast series, I've been thinking about how to align goals and where there might be overlap in terms of a Venn diagram of common goals that both the individual physician and the organization wants to strive towards. So it's a little bit larger than just me and, and surviving and thriving, but thinking about how I can fit in to the big picture. Well, I think that's an excellent perspective to take because I think I remember from the podcast we had with Dr. Shapiro, one key to managing conflict is to identify shared interests. You know, mm -hmm. where do things align so that the details of what needs to be negotiated have a common fundamental understanding? That's a really good place to start. So. I think that's a great perspective to have. And I think today's conversation will shed further light on this area of how to work within the system or even without, but to change it for the betterment of physician practice. So I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Diane Shannon to our session today. Diane is a physician and writer, and she's going to speak to us about one burnout survivor's story and her quest to change the system. Dr. Shannon, welcome. Would it be acceptable to call you Diane? Yes, please do. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to transition out of clinical medicine and into a non-clinical career? Sure. Well, it certainly wasn't my intention when I entered medical school to be doing something that was non-clinical and certainly <laughs> not to become a writer. What I found in the clinical years, so third and fourth year medical school and then residency and practice was that the the system was not what I expected, and I had no idea how chaotic it would be. Mm. And what I know now in retrospect is that 
that level of chaos, the lack of predictability, all the processes that didn't work, the places where patients could fall through the cracks mm -hmm. and be harmed, that really affected me. Mm -hmm. And I found myself becoming hypervigilant, trying to identify and look ahead to what might happen. And over time, that really took a toll on me, physically, emotionally, relationships. And when I had been practicing for a few years, I came to the point where the fuel tank was empty and I simply could not push to do more, to go on and continue to be hypervigilant the way I had been. I was lucky in that I was able to transition to a job at a communications company. Mm -hmm. And then after three years there, realized I loved writing and have been now a freelance writer for about 18 years. It wasn't until about five years ago when I was writing an article about the connection between physician wellness and the patient experience that I read the definition of professional burnout and realized that is what had happened to me. So before that, I didn't have the words to understand. Mm -hmm. And what I learned about it is that professional burnout is a response to a stressful environment. That is how it's defined. It doesn't have to do with the individual themselves. And I found really freeing to understand that it was a response to that stressful environment. And since then, I have been writing about it and talking about it, worked on the book with Paul Deschamps, who you spoke with in your last session. I see. And so what is the focus of your non-clinical career? Are you speaking more to physicians and how we can engender change in our work environment or in the processes that we partake in, or are you speaking more to the organizational head or leadership or both? Both, really. Part of my writing is about healthcare, so about mm -hmm. patient safety, about what performance improvement looks like for healthcare systems, what organizations can do to reduce errors, to mm -hmm. improve the patient experience. Then I also write and speak about burnout and burnout prevention. And for that, it really is multifaceted because when you think about it, there's individual solutions, mm -hmm. right, to make the individual more resilient in a stressful environment. And then there's the workplace level. What are those stressors right in the, the frustrations that Paul Deschamps spoke about in your last mm -hmm. session? And what can be done about those areas that are frustrating or causing workarounds, causing more stress for the clinicians. And then there's the larger picture of the organization and how the organization is either supporting or not supporting the physicians. And then the, beyond that, there are these those external factors that put pressure on an organization. So if there's a new regulation mm -hmm. and, and the other requirements, uh, documentation, and also changes in patient demographics. All of those external pressures might cause the organizational leaders to make decisions that then impact physicians and their daily lives. So kind of thinking on it on all of those levels. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at these 18 years or so from the time you left practice and how medicine is practiced today, do you think it's any better? I think it's different. Okay. When I think about now, in retrospect, that I know about burnout and know what some of the predictors are, 
I can say that for me, chaos was a huge stressor. Mm -hmm. We weren't working with electronic health records back then, right. and there weren't as many requirements. We had instead the problem of illegible handwriting, right. right? There were places where there were potential errors and patient safety really hadn't come into mm -hmm. its own. This was before the IOM report back in 1999. Mm -hmm. So, that for me was a bigger stress. Now I think there's much more in terms of the documentation, the requirements, the quality measures, mm -hmm. the reporting, and the number of hours that are spent outside of direct patient care, which is why we go into medicine, most of us, mm -hmm. want that interaction with patients. Mm -hmm. I still miss that. Mm -hmm. You know, I do. I did love that aspect of medicine. And I think that is what draws clinicians into healthcare. And the fact that today there are so many barriers to being able to spend that mm -hmm. time and have that patient provider, patient clinician relationship be really healing. I think that's a big factor today. So I think the practice is very different mm -hmm. than it was, but there have always been factors that can lead to burnout. Diane, what you're talking about struck a phrase in my mind that it felt like a little bit of a bait and switch. You know, I got into medicine, I'm the only one in my family who's ever practiced in medicine. And you go through medical school with all these ideals and you come out the other end, you enter practice and you say, oh my goodness, what just happened? Exactly. <laughs> what changes have you seen that have taken place more recently to help physicians from a systems perspective? Well, this is one of the exciting things about the book and my blog since then, since the book. I have been able to interview physicians mm -hmm. where they have felt a difference. Their organization has made a commitment to making some changes, and these changes don't happen overnight. Right. Often it's a system-wide commitment to change. So it involves changing processes, changing the culture, changing the way the leaders lead. And that really takes commitment and time, right? It's not going to happen overnight or even in six months. But when I've interviewed physicians in organizations like this, they tell amazing stories about how different their life is. Can you give an example of a success sure. story? Yeah. I'm just dying to hear one because yeah. I haven't heard there one was, <laughs> um In our book, we have 12 vignettes of different organizations where they're doing innovative things to try to reduce burnout. And one of them is a physician's group in Georgia. And the physician we spoke with there had just been out of practice for six years. Mm -hmm. And he said he was on the verge of burnout. Mm -hmm. He had young children. He said he was spending at least two hours at home every night on the electronic health record. During the day when he would start, he was already behind because the patients weren't roomed in a way that was efficient. So he was starting off behind at the beginning of the day. As the day went on, because they didn't have reliable systems in place, they would fall behind farther and farther. Mm -hmm. So that it wasn't unusual for him to be 45 or 60 minutes late to mm -hmm. an exam, to an appointment. And he would walk in the room, he was upset, he was flustered, and the patient was upset because I'd been waiting for 60 minutes. And there were a whole series of just issues like that that were frustrating, difficult. And he said, I don't imagine how I could have continued. So what changed? His organization committed to a number of changes. 
And one of the things they did is as a team, they met a, a number of times. So nurses, physicians, the front desk staff, leadership, and they talked about what are the biggest frustrations mm -hmm. and what can we do about it? They were on a number of different levels, but one, for example, was their scheduling. Mm -hmm. So in their schedule, they decided to look back at what are the actual number of hours or minutes that we need for different types of appointments, rather than have every appointment the same length. And so they varied it and they tried mm -hmm. a little bit of testing here to see would this work, would this work? They also added some triage time in the beginning of the mm -hmm. day. So patients would arrive before they were told to arrive at a certain time, knowing that their appointment was going to start a few minutes later, but then there was time for the processing, the rooming, and they developed a standard process for how patients would be greeted and entered into the system, brought into a room, whether they would have their vital signs done, all of that, what information would be available for the physician or nurse practitioner when he or she walked into the room. Mm -hmm. So there were all sorts of things that they did just with the schedule. Mm -hmm. And the end result was he was now finishing his day pretty much on time. If he took any work home, it was 30 minutes or less, and he was on time with his appointments. Mm -hmm. That's just one example of what they changed. Mm -hmm. But those small changes added up to something that now he says, I can imagine staying in this career for another 20 or 30 years. I actually have a question. So it sounds like an excellent intervention and that one of the things that was good, it resulted in tangible decrease in effort, that it sought the voice of those affected and it was multidisciplinary and they were given the empowerment to actually craft a solution and the resources to implement it. So it sounds like the system had some wisdom saying that this was worthwhile. What, I don't know if you've had insights based from hearing other such anecdotes, what makes a good case to the system that this kind of successful investment should be made? It's kind of the, what is the return on investment, mm -hmm. right? Because we want these systems to work because it makes sense, it's good for the patient, it's good for the clinician. Sometimes, depending on the leader, they may need to see some of the actual data. And in this case, this particular organization was headed by someone who was forethinking and could understand what the downstream implications were and was willing to make that investment. And I think it, it didn't just come from one leader. There were a number of leaders in that organization who understood the importance of changing some of these processes. Now, one of the things they did is they didn't change every practice within that health system at the same time. They went around and interviewed the different practices to see which ones are most ready to change. And then they focused on that as a pilot and when they learned what they could about what was effective there, they then would roll it out to a different clinic within the system. They wouldn't just hand it to them though. They would say, here's what worked at this previous clinic. What do you think would work here? And then they would adapt it a little bit. And if there were big changes, they'd go back to the pilot site and change that so that they had some consistency across the organization, but it was tailored so that people at each site had input. They so, had some agency. 
So I think that's critical. Some agency, some participation yes. in designing their practice life is, yes. is critical. And that and, sounds like an enlightened leadership. Yes. And I think, and I know that Paul Deschamps mentioned this in the last session, anything that helps those leaders understand what's actually happening on a daily basis at the clinic, at the patient level, is really important. And so he mentioned shadowing, inviting some of those leaders, especially if they don't have clinical experience, to shadow for a day or a half day and to see what is it like? How much time are you, Marie, spending entering information in the, the computer? I've gotten really good at typing without looking at the keyboard or the computer screen, but I'm sure that the clickety-clack in the background is disruptive. Um, I think a lot of the younger patients are used to that sort of multitasking and they don't mind it. But I often, when I'm meeting new patients, I ask permission first, if it's okay that I'm taking some notes while attending to what they're telling me. Right, but even for someone to sit with you and see where are the frustration points? Where are the places where you have difficulty getting something done efficiently that would help the patient move through the clinic more easily, maybe not have to come back a second time or get a phone mm -hmm. call or that sort of those inefficiencies that waste everyone's time, can be frustrating for everyone. To have the leaders see what does it mean so that they understand a little bit more about their decision-making and mm -hmm. the downstream effects of their decisions. So what happens when you are communicating with the leadership and they're coming to visit your clinic, not necessarily shadowing, but they say that they want your feedback as a physician. You give the feedback willingly, but no change happens. What do I do as a practicing clinician? I mean, I only have so many minutes and hours of the day. They're almost all accounted for. <laughs> How much more time and effort should I be investing? I think that's a personal question, you know, that, that really you need to weigh your work-life balance. And like mm -hmm. you said, there's only so many hours in a week and how much are you going to be able to spend trying to shift the system? Yes. But I do think if there are ways of feeding back to them and thinking about what keeps them up at night, right? The that's leaders. That's easy, Diane. All I've heard is dollar signs. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. In spite of all these sound bites that we're given, and it really does almost begin to be a little bit paternalistic, mm -hmm. when if I ever hear joy in practice, joy in medicine, that doesn't mean anything anymore, the way that it's being implemented in clinics. Yes. In that situation, I think it might be to consider what are the ways that you can speak about the dollar signs? What affects the dollar signs that they're gonna care about. So for instance, patient experience, right? There are now scores that affect reimbursement. So if you get any comments back from patients that have to do with something that relates to a frustration in the system that you think could be changed and help everyone, mm -hmm. that would be something to feed back to the leadership. If you get a letter from a patient or an email from a patient, and there's some way of tying that to something that could be improved that would help the efficiency and reduce the frustrations for everybody, I think that's something to feed back to them. So it sounds like a little bit more data gathering. I'm willing to put some effort into that. I think um, it does take a commitment. One thing I have a question about is if you've given direct feedback to the leadership of your organization, 
How do you hold them accountable if they say that they're willing to make a change? That's really difficult. Um, <laughs> I think one way is to schedule a meeting with them, say, well, where are we with this? Now that takes being a little bit of the squeaky wheel, right? To continue to say, okay, this is what you committed to. Are we seeing any progress? Can I be that squeaky wheel, Diane, when I'm the lowest on the totem pole in this hierarchy? I, I honestly feel a little bit scared sometimes. People tell me, well, don't worry, the nation's in short supply of good primary care physicians. You can always find a job somewhere else. So where does that leave me? I want to maintain good relationships with my direct supervisors, et cetera. But I've squeaked in the past, Diane, and I've been told to put a lid on it. Where do I go from there? What do I do? That's a good question. <laughs> it's probably not fair to even ask you. These are really sometimes existential. <laughs> well, I think it, it, from my experience personally, I think there's a point where it is difficult to go on, right? Right. But you're committed to staying in clinical medicine. And so the question is, is there any place where you have some agency? Is there some place where you can speak out? And even with, for example, keeping track of those places where you might feed information back to leadership, to not overtax yourself, but just if you have a place to keep a tally, and then at, at some point, make an appointment, speak with your direct supervisor to say, here are some things that I think would help both us as mm -hmm. clinicians and our patients. And mm -hmm. here's how that might affect something that matters to you. So what do you tell people, Diane, when physicians come to you and say, look, I'm near burnout. How do I transition away? <laughs> like you, you seem like a su success story, probably in many people's minds as practicing clinicians. Do you encourage them to seek other avenues of practice? Do you encourage them to stay in practice? What's really interesting is when I tell people that I've left medicine, right. if they're not clinicians, they ask me why. If they're clinicians, they ask me how. <laughs> That's telling. Right. <laughs> what I say is if there is some way to stay in clinical medicine, then do it. If that means you need to shift something or cut back, then maybe that's what you do. If you're absolutely at the end, maybe you need a break. Maybe then you'll come back to it. I do suggest working with a coach. There's some like less that I refer people to. I think it's a really hard question. I can tell you that I do miss clinical medicine. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about what would it mean to go back? Well, at this point, you know, to go back and retrain is not something I'm interested in doing. <laughs> but I do think that if clinicians can find a way to make it work, that it is worth it because it is an incredible profession. You know, we're very fortunate mm -hmm. in what we're able to do as clinicians. I, I, I've got a couple questions and some commentary. I was just at the AMA conference on physician health last month. And one good and relevant point is that the thought leaders in this area are shifting from a notion that this is a matter of having individuals become more resilient to this is a system problem to fix. And the two limbs of fixing it were one, practice efficiency, this process improvement for which we had a very successful example. But there was also an emphasis about finding solutions for what they called a culture of physician wellness, mm -hmm. which weren't merely 
I shouldn't say merely, weren't solely about repurposing time to talk to patients, but were about this wonderful profession, about finding meaning and socialization and career differentiation and spirituality and whatever else are latent possibilities. So I wonder if any of the successful solutions in your interview series disclosed other interventions that were more about providing new kinds of collegiality, uh, consciousness raising, case discussions around both technical, perhaps caregiving medicine and so forth. Yes, yes. I think there are some examples that I can think of. One, you spoke about Joe Shapiro's group. So that's one way of having that peer support from trained physicians. There are also organizations that have groups that meet monthly to talk about a poem or a piece of writing, and then to talk about the clinical implications of that for those clinicians, those it's generally physicians, a place where they can talk about the emotional impact of practicing medicine. And I think that's really important. There's also for medical students, the healer's art, the curriculum that is for first year medical mm -hmm. students that creates a community where it is okay to talk about the emotional impact of clinical medicine. And there are several other groups I've interviewed like that. There's also the approach of what's called appreciative inquiry, which is kind of looking at the positive and the strengths mm -hmm. of a group first. So I think there are a lot of places where that's being looked at. And for me personally, I think if I had had that sort of a group, especially in training, and perhaps a mentor who was showing me how do you navigate the work-life balance and dealing with the inherent stress of practicing medicine? I think that would have been very helpful for the stressors that I was finding mm -hmm. when I was in residency and practice. And then I've got another question for you as a writer. So you have made the point that presenting data to leadership about what a return on investment is, and you also have these dozen stories so I was wondering, as a writer, do you think it's the stories? Is it the data? What's a good way to get someone's ear? Ah, I think it's both. Okay. My sense is that there is nothing like a real story to elicit the emotions and then to follow it up with the data that says, yes, you know, here are the implications of this and here's one person's experience. I think that's very powerful. I'm also reminded of something from our session with Dr. Shapiro, which akin to managing conflict, managing progress might be something where you cannot do it one-to-one -one between yourself and the highest levels in the organization, mm -hmm. that it is a matter of cultivating a relationship with some of the intermediaries who hold some of the power. As Diane said, could you talk to your immediate supervisor mm -hmm. or perhaps the supervisor's supervisor to tell stories and present data mm -hmm. to create a context for influence that might finally reach the people who really hold the power. I'll keep knocking on those doors, Les. I won't give up that easily. I know you won't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been a really interesting session. It's given me some hope to hear that there are 12 diverse solutions out there, and I, <laughs> I think I should find out what they're about because uh, people will want to know. And uh, also, it's, it's good to know that there is a way to channel creatively one's frustration with the 
system and to reach an audience. So thank you very much, Diane. Thank you. You also referred to the environmental pressure on physicians and its role in downstream causing burnout. And I wondered if, because I presume your reading audience encompasses people beyond those in healthcare organizations, delivery organizations themselves, but also people in that environment, politicians, regulators, insurance executives. I wondered if you think there is a conversation to be had with them about the value proposition of physician wellness. Definitely. And I think this is an ongoing conversation. You know, this is kind of cutting edge at this point. One of the factors is if you think about it, and compare healthcare with other industries. We're an industry where the biggest revenue generators are our physicians. In another industry where their biggest revenue generating resource was compromised, that would be the first priority of leaders and of regulators. And for some reason that's not happening here. Mm. There's also the concern simply about capacity in the healthcare system. And there's projections that there are going to be uh, a paucity of physicians, especially in primary care in the years coming, mm -hmm. partially because baby boomer physicians are going to be retiring and baby boomer, there are more baby boomer patients with chronic diseases. That's a concern when you have physicians who are finding they need to either cut back on their clinical hours or retire early mm -hmm. or leave, you know, leave the profession entirely. So I think that's a, that's a larger question for our country. One of the solutions that I've seen I think that is really innovative is at Mission Health, which is an integrated healthcare system in North Carolina. They started something called Immersion Day. And this was discussed both in our book and there was a JAMA Perspectives article about this. What they do is they invite board leaders to come and shadow for a day. They put on scrubs, they sign the privacy agreements, and they go for an entire shift with a doctor or a nurse. And they see what they do. They go into the OR, they're there in the ER, they're sitting next to them at the computer, and they really get a sense of what it's like. Now, Mission has started inviting others, journalists and legislators, to come and see this is what it's like. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes such an impression because when you're off somewhere else making a decision, and you may understand the words, but you don't understand the implications for people, for the clinicians and the patients, then your decision is detached from what's really going on. Has that experiment led to any viable outcomes or changes? Well, for them, and this is anecdotal, yes. One of the concerns had been the amount of pressure on the clinicians because of the EHR, mm -hmm. the inefficient EHR system. And the board members had gone through this process and had seen the frustration and how many clicks it took simply to order a medication. The CEO wanted to present a multi-million dollar program for wellness of the clinicians. Mm -hmm. Part of that included fixing some of the EHR problems, having more technicians available to do coaching, changing some of the areas of the electronic fields so that they were more efficient. 
When the CEO went to present this to the board, it was immediately approved because they had seen the effect of the inefficient EHR on the clinicians. Now, maybe they would have approved that <laughs> otherwise, but he thought, and I agree, their understanding the reality of what daily life is like mm -hmm. is what allowed them to make that decision. And Marie, I wondered if you had any reflections uh, about what you've just heard. That there's hope yet, perhaps. And Diane, your research and the anecdotes you've uncovered are very illustrative of the things that even I, as a on-the-ground working clinician, can do from a day-to-day -day perspective. So I'm gonna hold out that hope and I'll keep trying. Well, I certainly hope you keep it, Marie, because I know you're committed, dedicated, and really believe in the mission of medicine and taking on the systems in which we work is a really worthy thing. And I think Diane's anecdotes have given all of us some hope that there is a way forward, as difficult as it may be and as persistent as we may need to be to cope with it. So I'd like to thank both of you, as well as our listening audience, for joining us in another session of MedPep. And next week, we will be talking with Dr. Helen Reese, who will be speaking on the topic, Unlocking the Grip of Burnout with Empathetic Care. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about today's program, email us at feedback at medpep.org or simply visit us at medpep.org. And now, here's a few words from MedPep's founder, Steve Edelman. This is Dr. Steve Edelman, creator of MedPep, the Medical Professionals Empowerment Program, and director of PHS, Physician Health Services, a charitable subsidiary of the Massachusetts Medical Society. Our mission is to promote the well-being of health professionals. Many thanks to our seeker, Dr. Marie Curious, to our guide, Dr. Les Schwab, and to our wonderful group of guest experts. Hats off to project leader, Dr. J. Dev Dasgupta, audio producer, Douglas Stevens, guitardiologist Dr. Susie Brown, and to the staff and board of PHS. Please visit and connect with us at medpep.org for CME info, faculty bios, and additional empowerment resources.